I told you I was seeing 100 patients a week within a year. You can imagine how it forced me to up my ante in terms of reading whatever I can. Anything that'll come out, articles, research, Chinese medicine, to some degree biomedicine, anything I can get my hands on because, man, I was getting the real stuff and I had to get people better. Somehow I was able to do it and I got to see which books were really valuable and which were not, which methodologies were valuable and which were not, at least for me. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. A patient of mine came back from a holiday trip up north. She loves it up north, loves everything about it, the cold, the color of the sky, the spirit in the landscape, the sense of belonging, like when you know you're home. There was a Christmas celebration in her small town up there, people from all over come for the singing, festivities, and a parade. A cynical person would say it was a scene out of a Hallmark movie, but cynics rarely change the world for the better. And here's something else. Cynics lack joy. She told me about the singing. It sounded like she was telling me about a secret prayer. All these people who have come from all around the area, putting their voices together, coming together in joy, and in doing so, creating connection. Coming together in joy. Let me say that again, because this is important. They were coming together in joy, not coming together in opposition to something, not coming together in protest or because the world is broken. They came together to belong to joy, to belong to one another, to belong to a moment in time. As she told me the story of the singing, the voices, the bells, a parade with a tree drawn down to the town square, what stood out is that joy, that connection with others in a way that gladdens the heart, that brightens the shen. It doesn't come from nowhere. It's created, conjured, if you will, through the coming together to celebrate connectedness. Joy doesn't come through opposition. It does not arise from drawing lines between them and us. It's the purposeful joining of spirit, heart, and voice in the recognition of belonging. The cynical person attempting to appear smart would say that the world is broken, and so any leaking of joy into the world is childish and naive. But I think the cynic is wrong. Joy and connection, this is exactly how it's created. Not through the power of opposition, but through the ever-present capacity to connect, to come together in recognition of what's right with the world. Today, I have another history series conversation for you. If you've been a regular listener, You'll know that in August of this year, Geological featured conversations with a few people who helped to build our profession before we really had a profession. Of course, professional structures or not, we are constantly charting a course into the unknown. That said, those like Zev Rosenberg, who found his way into the medicine before there was licensure in most states and found ways to build a thriving word-of-mouth practice, He helped to lay the groundwork 
that folks like myself, and probably you as well, could follow. He engaged with state legislators, helped to build an acupuncture association in Colorado, and get acupuncture licensure written into law. Along the way were misfortunes that turned out to be lucky breaks, opportunities that seemed to come out of nowhere, and plenty of dogged persistence in following something that was worth putting his energy into. We'll be getting into all of this in a moment. Stay with us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool. A sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. 
Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one month grace period on your new Jane account. Zev Rosenberg, welcome back to Geological. It's wonderful to be back. I always love being with you and seeing you virtually. Yes, our listening audience doesn't, but you and I get to. Yeah, and then we'll see you in person at Pacific Symposium this year, which will be great. That's right. Looking forward to that. So we're sitting down today. Actually, we're taking a trip in the Wayback Machine. This is one of the now continuing history series. Did a whole month of it back in uh, August of 2023. Man, what I found is there's a whole lot I didn't know about our profession. Some of it I just plain was ignorant of. Some of it I maybe didn't have the complete story of. And some of it I, I just had no idea what it was like way back before a profession was a profession. You know, there was a moment it kind of began to emerge into the mainstream culture. You've been around a while. Zev, when did you first kind of cotton on to acupuncture? When you first started hearing about acupuncture, what was going on in the world? It's like, what did the landscape look like at that moment in time? Well, you know, it goes back to when I met Huang Di, the Yellow Emperor, about 2,000 years ago. And uh, <laughs> he said, hey, Zev, you should consider this as a career, you know. And, uh-huh. That's back when you were dropping acid. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, uh, when I was a teenager, you know, um, as Bob Dylan said, you know, the 60s were not about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. They were about opening up of American culture to other cultures. And part of that renaissance of culture, which came out through the music, was the journey to the East, as Bob Flaws used to call it, and Rudyard Kipling, I guess, used to call it that as well. And all of a sudden, there was exposure to all this really neat, cool stuff that really fit in with this new world view that was coming in of openness and connectedness and so forth. So my real starting point was actually a Pink Floyd song. I bought their first album in 1966, 67, called Piper at the Gates of Dawn. And at the same time, I used to go to the public library and take a lot of books out. And one of the books I took out was the Wilhelm Bain's I Ching, as it was called. The oh, I Ching. Yes, the yellow one. Yeah. And it was actually pretty good. And I liked it so much that I never returned the book. I just paid the fine and actually ended up owning the book, which is still center on my shelf. I got it for three fifty in those days, which was a lot of money, I guess, back then. But I paid the fee. And then I'm listening to this song by Pink Floyd called Chapter 24, this beautiful song. And it goes something like, a movement is accomplished in six stages, and the seventh brings return. Thunder in the overcourse of heaven. Things cannot be destroyed once and for all. Change, return, success, coming and going without error. Action brings good fortune. Sunset, 
sunrise. And I said, why do they call it chapter 24? Then I got a hunch. I had my Yi Ching there. I opened it up. There's the words. He was using the Wilhelm Danes. I said, man, this is fantastic. So that kind of inspired me. And then I discovered around that time when I was 17, what was called macrobiotics, diet based on yin-yang theory through George Asawa, who I later found out through uh, Peter Ekman's book in the footsteps of the old emperor that Asawa was teaching five-phase acupuncture in Paris for many years to pay his bills. I mean, he was basically teaching diet, but he wrote a book called Acupuncture and the Philosophy of the Far East. And that came out also when I was in my teens. I had already started macrobiotic diet, which is basically grains, vegetables, fish, seasonal stuff, some fruits, nuts. It's not extreme unless, of course, one chooses it to be extreme. And I still eat that way 53 years later. And it certainly serves me well. And it definitely comes out of Asian sources, miso soup and you know the Japanese variation on things. The yin-yang theory is kind of skewed, but that's really a topic for another time uh, well, yin yang, yeah, you you know, we could have a whole series of conversations on that one. I'm struck here though. This is great. You got smacked upside the head by a big walloping dose of synchronicity that that combined very young in the openness of the 60s and what was going on there. And you know, if if you if you weren't there, you might want to go listen to some of that music from back then. There was a lot going on. Oh, yeah. It was very magical. Yeah, Pink Floyd and uh, Chapter 24. Holy smokes. That's, I, I mean, that really set you off on a path. It certainly did. So my next move was to leave New York because in those days, New York was highly polluted. And I was a sickly kid, so I was always looking for a better way to do things. We're talking New York City? The suburbs, Lawn Guyland as we called it back then. On Guyland. Yeah. <laughs> and I never saw a blue sky until I went up to Vermont when I was able to, I got my first license in 1617. The air was murky. Trucks were blowing off blue smoke. All the waterways had tires and rusted cars and they were dumping raw sewage into the yeah. ocean. And, then and, and what year is this? What year are we talking about? The 60s. Basically. Like where, like early 60s, mid 60s? Well, from or... the time I was a small boy, I, I was born in 1952, pre-Environmental Protection Agency, which interestingly enough, we can thank Richard Nixon for that as well as, uh, you know, you know, opening up China so that, you know, we can have cultural exchange with them. So interesting. Nixon, when, when Nixon established the Environmental Protection Agency? Yes. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> the man that I have so loved to hate. <laughs> All of us. <laughs> You know, it's I, talking about yin and yang, right? right. I mean, it, it's so phenomenal, these influences. Sometimes there's a, an influence, you're like, oh, God, those bastards. And then you look again and you go, oh, wait a minute. How about that? Yeah, so that was like where the environment started to be regulated. But I constantly had respiratory problems, and literally from the time I was born with bronchitis all the way through my teens. And, you know, Western medicine never did anything for me with that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but when I changed my diet and started learning about miso soup and ginger and things like that, and my first exposure to Chinese herbs, which was Georgia Sawa's Mu Tea Number 9, M-U, I started to get healthier. But I also realized I needed to leave New York, so I moved to Colorado. 
high altitude, much cleaner air, mm-hmm. and got into the natural food business first. That was uh, there was a big movement back then to open natural food stores and distribution warehouses. So that was my first gig. I left college, NYU, when I was like nineteen. Moved to Colorado, but I was so you dropped out of school. Yeah, I was in a sense forced to drop out of school, but I dropped out of school. Yeah, you, you and other luminaries like you know Bill Gates, Stephen Jobs, you know the list goes on and on. They have a lot more money than I do, and you know they yeah, think- but but they also followed something that was yes 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 not on the curriculum at school. Yeah, Steve Jobs especially is one of my heroes because he says follow your vision, follow your passion, and uh, he certainly was an influence all the way along in my career. So. In Colorado, I discovered something. I discovered that I wasn't a businessman. That's a pretty <laughs> How did you find that out? I just couldn't do it. I mean, either working in a warehouse where I always got the lousy dirtbag jobs, even though I was part owner, like unloading trucks and, uh, you know, I never got to do any of the clerical work. The other guys, the other, my two partners got to sit behind the desk while I did all the physical work. So I collapsed with exhaustion. And also sitting behind you know, a counter in a natural food store was so boring. So I decided I wanted a more direct way to interact with people and help their health because I was really committed to helping people with health. So I opened a macrobiotic center uh, first in Boulder and then in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I moved down. And uh, I met my first influences in Chinese medicine at that time. So I don't consider myself version 1.0 of Chinese medicine, more like 1.2. There were a few people that preceded me, like Dan Bensky for one, you know, he was in the 70s. And a gentleman named Michael Brofman, who's up in San Anselmo, you don't hear about him much, but- No, you don't. No, he's very quiet. He's off the grid radar. And he, but he's one of the great practitioners. He focuses basically on cancer treatment at the Pine Street Clinic. But he was in Boulder in those days when I was still in the natural food business. And what was he doing there in Boulder? He was in Taiwan and he studied- Oh, he'd been to Taiwan back in the yes. 70s. Well, like Dan, he got a degree in Chinese language, which was a smart thing to do in university. I think it was S-U-N-Y. And he was able to go to China and he found a teacher, but this teacher was an apprentice style. And He finished it as apprenticeship, came back, but his teacher forbid him to charge for his work for at least a few years. So he was working as a parking lot attendant in Boulder while I was working in the natural foods business. And I used to go visit him because he and his girlfriend at the time were macrobiotic, and his clinic was called the Temple of the Infinite Dream. (laughs) So 60s. (laughs) So 60s. So people used to line up down the block, a lot of Hare Krishna types and so forth. And he would treat them, and I, and I really became interested in this model, you know, having a treatment modality along with diet to help people. And I was always loved plants and herbs and so forth. So that was one influence. And then there was a, a naturopath who did acupuncture named Tim Binder, who then moved up to Montana, and that really appealed to me. And then finally, a macrobiotic teacher who I was very close with named Noboro Muramoto. So my first step was to move to New Mexico, and I went to naturopathic school. There were a little school in Santa Fe called the Santa Fe School of Natural Medicine that was started by a gentleman, J. Victor Shearer, 
who was a real out there guy during the Los Alamos era, where he was treating people for radiation poisoning up there out of his clinic in Santa Fe. There were no Chinese medicine schools in my area at that point. The only schools that were available were Nessa, New England School of Acupuncture on the East Coast, and ACTCM in San Francisco. At that You're point. in the middle. Right. I was in the middle. But you'd already been you'd already been exposed to it. Yes. By hanging out with Michael Brofman. Yeah. Who was treating people for free. Yeah. Because he had the capacity, but his teacher said, no, no, you can't charge until you got a little more time in the boat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was very, very interesting. And he also picked wild herbs. And there was another person there, a Russian guy and his wife, uh, and they used to combine macrobiotics with Chinese philosophy. They turned me on to Ilza Weiss, Yellow Emperor's Classic, which was the first partial translation of the Neijing. So they gave me a copy of that. Unfortunately, they had to leave the country because they were picking wild mushrooms and their daughter got poisoned and um, family services was after them. But that wasn't their fault. It was just, you know, you have to be very careful picking wild mushrooms. So I learned a lesson from that unfortunate situation, that tragic situation. So anyway, I went to Santa Fe and while I was at the school, one of the teachers handed me the Barefoot Doctor's Manual, which half of the book is in a, it's a bunsao, it's a materia medica from Hunan province. And he said, no, this is what you should be now, doing. Now, this is, a, this is a translation of the yeah English translation of the Barefoot Doctor's Manual. And I had other people in the martial arts community, the Qigong community, said, Zev, being a macrobiotic counselor is not enough. You got to learn Chinese medicine, right? So I sponsored Noburo Muramoto, who wrote a book called Healing Ourselves, which is like the first English language general public book on Asian medicine. And he had an herb company, and we started ordering Chinese herbs from my little community there. And I invited him to lecture in Santa Fe in 1975 at a health food restaurant called The Happy Carrot. The 60s was still hanging on in Santa Fe. Mm -hmm. And he used gold needles, and he gave me my first treatment, believe it or not. Oh, actually, I think Brofman had treated me previously. But... I was wondering. I, I would have suspected you would have been treated by Brofman. Yeah, but he gave me a treatment with gold needles and felt my pulse, and he said, Zev, every macrobiotic counselor has to study the Shang Han Lun. At that time, of course, I didn't know what the Shang Han Lun was. You need to learn about San Yang, San Yin, three Yang, three Yin. It's much more subtle than just macrobiotic Yin Yang. So that gave me another step in the right direction, but and finally, around 1977, 78, I believe it was, an acupuncture school opened up called the Kodatama Institute. And it turns out the teacher, the sensei running that school was a man named Sensei Masahiro Nakazono. And he had studied with George Asawa, Uyashiba, martial arts, but he went back to the original yin and yang of the Yi Jing. And he did not agree with us how was in but basically he followed the same dietary principles. So I applied for his school. They invited me to come. And I was a very arrogant young man. And I had what... Uh, Who isn't when you're a young man? I know. It, it was, I was really all piss and vinegar. And I was very judgmental. And I well, had... A, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, look, we're trying to make our way in the world. Yeah. And you take a machete to cut yourself a path. Exactly. Especially a path that hadn't been uh, traveled before. So 
I had a lot of what they call pitta today in the Ayurvedic medicine, you know. So yeah, piston vinegar is how we call that in right. English, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I was invited to take a class at Kodadama. Yeah, the Kodadama, and I had read a book or two, and basically it was based on wuxing five phases, mm-hmm. which put them in league with the Worsley folks who were also wuxing at the time. Yeah, but they're but they're very iconoclastic. Oh Kodadama yeah, was a whole different kettle of fish. Oh yeah, but there was like the five phases versus the eight principal people in those days. That there were two factions. Yeah, that was the thing back then. And it was really ridiculous. And I'll, I'll get to the, more of that in a little bit. So anyway, it was in a dojo because he also taught martial arts, Aikido, because he had studied with Uyashiba sensei. And I'm sitting on the floor in Sei's posture with the other students. And he comes into class and he says, forgive me for imitating his accent. I, I don't mean anything personal. It's just, you know, it just really illustrates the story. It's like almost like... Uh, Monsieur Nufuni, you know, my, from my favorite uh, Kurosawa <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. martial arts film. So he says, he holds up an article, interesting article in paper. Japanese scientists find four types of blood tissue. This is very interesting, but what's wrong with his research? So students sit there quietly, scared shitless, you know. So I raise my hand and I said, there should be five types of blood tissue. It's missing the fifth vowel, which is E, I, and that's the transcendent dimension. And that was the answer he was looking for. And I knew that was the answer he was looking for. How did you know that? Because he mentioned four, and his whole thing is five phases, five sounds, I, E, E, O, U. And the E is the dimension that is transcendent to the wood, fire, metal, earth. So that's how he saw five phases. And he thought that language was the most important aspect a five-phase principle. So he said he was into sound healing to a large degree, along with basically macrobiotic diet, acupuncture. He didn't use herbs. So anyway, I thought he was going to be very happy. Ah, you found the right answer. Instead, he turned red and started screaming at his students, you made an old man look stupid. You made me lose face. How dare you? And he gets up and he storms out of the classroom, out of the dojo, doesn't come back for two weeks. And then about a week or two later, I got my rejection letter for being too arrogant. <laughs> so I ended up not going to that school. Let's put it that way. Wow. Now, I still have colleagues and friends in the Kodotama community, and he was a great healer and a great teacher. He was kind of like old school Japan disciple, deshi type of thing. And I respect that, but I think I was probably was a little bit too much. I had the same thing, by the way, happened with me with uh, Dr. Yeshe Dundon, the Tibetan doctor, some years later. I had a friend of mine from the Orthodox Jewish community visiting from uh, New York, and he came with me to see Dr. Dundon, and he asked him to go to India to study with him. He did not ask me. He thought I was too impetuous with my questions. <laughs> well, maybe too impetuous in your answers. You had an answer. It turned out to be be the answer. Maybe you just needed to phrase it as a question instead. I don't know, but whatever it was that, yeah, that was not, that was not a path for you. Isn't that funny how that works? It's so weird. And a couple of years later, they decided to accept me, but by then it was too late. They had to... So what happened was a gentleman named Stuart Watts came down and that same naturopathic school, which I had been a, graduated from and associated with, they opened up a Chinese medicine branch, this hippie guy named Stuart Watts, 
who had studied with Ted Kapchuk in Boston at New England School and with Dr. Tinyao So, who started the school, who was a great acupuncturist. And there you can write books of the legends about him. He served in the jungles of Indonesia, treating people just with needles, anything you could think of, you know, blockages of bile ducts by worms, schismatizes, skin diseases, basically with needles and a few local herbs. Amazing healer. So anyway, Stuart Watts comes down in his Volkswagen van with a bunch of hippie students of his who had been up with him in Vancouver and is asked to start an acupuncture school. There happened to be a couple of really good teachers there. So they opened another school and it was in the back room of a dojo, another dojo in Santa Fe. So we used to sit across their leg and on the floor and study. And the following year, they rented a building and combined with a massage naturopathic school and an Ayurvedic school, which started with Dr. Vasant Ladd, Ayurvedic medicine, who ended up, I'm honored to say, one of my teachers, especially in terms of pulse diagnosis. And they started battling with the Kodatama school. Battle went to the school board. It was really crazy stuff. I mean, now, was... what were they battling about? Were there not enough students to go around? Or Dr. Nakazono, the culture he came from, he didn't feel right about someone else opening a school, especially an eight principal school, in what he felt was like his town. Santa Fe is always kind of a small town. Yeah. And they tried to cause trouble for the school with the board at the time. And it was really ridiculous. And it ended up in the end that they made peace. And uh, it was a little, just a little bit of drama. And by the way, one of my main teachers there who used to fly out was Ted Kapchuk. Now, I had previously met Ted Kapchuk in Boston some years earlier when I was studying macrobiotics. I would go from time to time. And... A colleague of mine took me to his apartment back then where he had his own clinic at home and a ponytail down to his waist. And he was not a big fan of macrobiotics, but we hit it off as fast friends. So when he came to teach at the school, just at the time his book, A Web That Has No Weaver, came out, which was one of our textbooks. There weren't too many books back then. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. There really wasn't much back then. Well, there was the outline of acupuncture, which came from the mainland, which was a short course for Western MDs. 
And that was also the basis. There was licensing in New Mexico at that point, and I did get a license, number 74. And um, I hated the book. It just turns out, I know uh, Dan was talking about just the other day, I got a copy of Acupuncture, a Comprehensive Text, which was a translation of the Shanghai book, literally comprehensive, a lot more detail, a lot more information. And I said, I'm using this book. Well, that was the Eastland Press book. Yes, that was one of their first. That's the book that launched Eastland Press. Yes. And that became my textbook, even though everybody else was using the other one. I said, yeah, I'll pass all the boards, test everything in this book because I have more information to draw on. Yes, because you, you can use that for your clinical work. Yeah. There's the stuff that you learn academically. This is what I use for a test. Some of it might be useful in clinic. Some of it might not. You have to know how to discern what's yeah. helpful in what situation. We had a couple of other teachers. One was named J. Michael Moore, who was a, ran the dojo, and a great herbalist who had studied ACTCM named Santos, Daniel Santos. I really love that guy. And we only had one textbook, which is the Hong Yen Shu book, which is basically based on abdominal conformation, Japanese compo. But all the formulas were in there. The translation was horrible, and that's a subject for another time. Well, there's that, but still to have the... So it had diagrams for the different yeah. abdominal patterns. Well, that's a treasure right there. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And I've seen the same diagrams in recent books that are much better translations sure since then things get better in, in time generally yeah. speaking and also i got my first copy of shang hun lun which was called the treatise on typhoid also from the oriental healing arts institute because if you look at a western medical dictionary shang hun is translated as typhoid so it was very poor but again it was a beginning and it did have the original chinese and I also got Henry Liu's translations of several classics. The uh, non And this is in the 70s at this point. Late 70s, early 80s. I, I, I got out around 82, mm -hmm. started practicing 83. So um, I had those. And then, let's see, what else was I using back then? Again, it was very hard to understand. The translations were not great. There were no standards, anything like that. And then after that, of course, you know, the Bensky, the text, you know, like uh, formulas and strategies and the Materia Medica came out and that made it much more comprehensive, much better, easier to use and so forth. So we had to make do with what we could and kind of fill in the blanks. So when I graduated, um, because of circumstance, I had to decide, do I stay in New Mexico, which I really loved? Do I stay or do I go? Yeah. If I stay, it'll be trouble. And if I leave, it'll be double. Well, actually, if I stayed, it would have been double with my partner at the time. So I had to leave. So I had the choice of either Tucson, Arizona, which didn't have licensing. I would have had to take like a PA exam, physician's assistant exam. So I turned that down. Or Colorado, where I had been before. And um, I was part of the Jewish community there. So that was one of the things that moved me back there. And now, was there licensure at that time? No, no. There was a weird little law called the Physicians Extender. I call it the Hamburger Helper Law. It's the only state union that had it. <laughs> physician Extender. Yeah, a physician can delegate medical services to a layperson. To a layperson. To a layperson, if you could believe that. 
Okay. I guess because it was such a rural state in those days that it was kind of like you had to go over a mountain and dale to get medical services. Yeah, you're like people. deputized. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So I got in under that, but we were basically underground. We couldn't advertise. And I found a little old... But you could get paid and you didn't have to go to jail, unlike some people. That didn't happen, but basically it was underground word of mouth. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, chiropractors were advertising the Yellow Pages as board-certified acupuncturists with a weekend training. <laughs> and I'll get to that in a minute. Uh -huh. But you could not advertise as an acupuncturist. No. But a chiropractor could. Yes. Yes. So we wanted to change that. So are you still full of piss and vinegar? Because you're going to need. Oh, you bet, man. You she bet. to make those kind of changes, brother. You bet. So the first thing is, I found an old Jewish doctor, a Holocaust survivor, who was in the same community as me, and he had lost his wife and eight kids in the Holocaust. Moved to Denver, moved to America, remarried, and had seven more. Mm. By the time I met him, he was pretty much retired, but he was still doing circumcisions. <laughs> Is a moil. So he filled out my paperwork with the medical board as protection. Mm -hmm. And any insurance patient time, he would, uh, I would bring all my patient files with him and we'd discuss cases. It was actually great because yeah. he loved what I did. He said, you're doing like what I did in the old days. We used to go to patients' houses. We used to really look at their whole lifestyle and everything. He was very supportive of what I was doing. So I opened up an office eight blocks from the state capitol buildings because I wanted to lobby for an acupuncture law. And we started an acupuncture association, Colorado Acupuncture Association. And I had a couple of colleagues, one was named Ron Rosen. And my very first week of practice, two things happened. Because I also had an office in Boulder one day a week. I lived in Denver, but I commuted to Boulder. I met Bob Flaws. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he had his publishing house out of his living room, Xeroxed things. And I went there and bought some of his books. Right? Hey, here's some books on Chinese medicine. It's right down yeah. the street. Yeah. yeah, including things on pediatrics and stuff like that. And the Acupuncture Association had sponsored a weekend seminar with Dr. Yoshi Dunden, that's a great Tibetan physician, who was the one who dissed me and asked my friend to go with him back to India. But that's fine. because <laughs> <laughs> He inspired me no end in terms of feeling pulses because... With the language barrier and everything, he could feel a pulse and tell you exactly what was going on. The prescribed formula is amazing. I'm still in love with his work. I mean, he just also really turned me around. It was a great inspiration. Unfortunately, by then, Michael Broffitt had moved to California, and that's a whole other story. But I was there. So Ron Rosen, who unfortunately passed away several years ago, Chip Chase was there. I met him. We became fast friends, and he's also long gone. And Don Hayes, who's another one of really version 1.0, where I'm version 1.2. He had also started in the 70s. He studied in Okinawa. And his teacher's mm. book, like Michael Brofman, their main books were the Nanjing. Where did you learn your acupuncture? Oh, you learned it from the Nanjing. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. And then, of Always course, five element theory. and Yes. So when I got, finally got a hold of Paul Unschuld's first translation of it, that was another revelation that came was having a copy of that Nanjing that Michael Brofman and Don Hayes had spoken about. So I really took off with that. And as you know, my second book is based on the Nanjing, and my next book with Stephen Cowan is also going to be largely based on the Nanjing as well. So it's been 
also my one of my major classics. I call it the haiku of medical classics. Of course, that's a topic for another time because it's so condensed. That's funny. It is. Yeah, it is condensed. It's very condensed. And the Japanese love it because of that simplistic but condensed, dense material. So I, I think the Chinese like that, too. They're very keen on Cheng Yu, like four characters that tell yeah. a whole story. There's there, there's a whole aspect, you know, in all those Asian languages. Well, I, I think Chinese and Japanese both. In Taiwan, it was popular, but in the mainland, Nanjing was, shall we say, in disfavor during the Cultural Revolution days because of the feudal aspect. Well, what was not in disfavor? Yeah, but definitely the Nanjing was. Sure. The... Old bourgeois. Yeah. So we, st we got this association going, and we started, we found a lobbyist, and it took several years, but, and we got a law, but by that time, I was already moving to California some years later, and that's another story. But in the meantime, word of mouth, there were so few of us in the state of Colorado. And when I graduated, I, I wasn't thinking, well, I have to make a living. I have to support a family. I, I was totally naive there, too. You know, it's, it, it's so, that's so interesting. I just want to dig into this for just a moment. Because when I went to, to Chinese medicine school, I was wanting to make sure that I could make a dang living. I'd, I'd lived a portion of my life not making a lot of money, thinking that was virtuous. And what I discovered was, no, life just ain't great when you don't have enough cash. Not such a great thing. So when I came along in the 90s, I was really glad there was already a profession set up. But all along, and maybe it's just, you know, the background I come from, you know, my, my family didn't have a lot of money. You know, the idea is like, you're going to have to like figure out how to make this stuff work. Like do whatever you want, but like be sure, to, be sure you can feed yourself. Right. So I'm so curious about guys like you and plenty of others there in the early days. You weren't thinking about how can I make a living? You were thinking about how can I know more about this stuff? Yeah, really. The making a living was almost secondary in a way. I mean, granted, I ended up overworking for several years and did make. Well, that, well that's what happens when you're not paying attention to making a living. <laughs> so. I ended up within a year, just through word of mouth, not being mm -hmm. able to advertise or put a shingle on my door with 100 patients a week. Wow. That must have meant there was this like cultural yearning or, or, or some kind of yearning for something beyond the conventional. There was a need for this medicine. I could really see it at that point. Mm -hmm. And within the next year, second year, I already opened a full herbal pharmacy with raw herbs, Sunten, everything you could think of, and started getting liquid extracts. And I hired a full-time assistant and then two full-time assistants. And then- An extension to the extension. Yeah. And they were both midwives. So that got me into the birthing community and into hospitals. And then I started getting cancer patients coming to- Wait a minute. I thought you said you were a terrible businessman. I didn't do anything. I just put needles in people and they started coming. I mean- what do they say? Uh, the rest will follow. Just do what you love to do. And that's what Steve Jobs said. Follow yeah. your passion and it will follow. And that's what yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the other Joseph Campbell said the same thing. Joseph Campbell? Interesting. Hmm. I, think there's, I think there's a footnote to that. Like, follow your bliss. He forgot to mention and be prepared to work your ass off. Oh, yeah. But if it's fun, you don't feel the work so much. 
my original inspiration actually in all this, when I start, I started getting back into Jewish practice through a great macrobiotic teacher named Michelle Abbasera, i.e. Meir Abachatsira. And I actually stayed at his house at a certain point in the 70s. And I was reading books of Maimonides on medicine. Oh, okay. And, and, how, and how long have you been out of acupuncture school at this point? I hadn't even gone yet. I actually had a talk with Ted Kapchuk about it, and he agreed with me that both of our, one of our original inspirations to do this work was Maimonides. But there was no one to teach Maimonides medicine, which was basically Tibi Unani, Greek Arabic medicine, humorally based, balanced the humors, different treatments, herbs, diets, so forth. There was no one, there were no teachers out there. So even if I wanted to study it, it was not a viable career option to do that. You have all these hospitals named after Maimonides, but none of them have an inkling of the type of medicine you actually practice. So Maimonides, you know, being a Jewish guy myself, you know, you, you hear about him because he's, you know, he's like in the pantheon of, you know, great Jewish characters over the years, great doctor and this and that. Beyond his methods, though, he seemed to be a very wise person who understood human beings. The community I've been in for the last 12 years, Jewish community, is what we call a Sephardic Maimonidean community. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that Maimonides was a pan, a broad thinker who was not a religious specialist. He believed in all the sciences, arts, poetry. He was a man of the world. Renaissance guy. Yeah, Renaissance guy, a polymath, as well as a Torah scholar. And there were none of the stringencies that you see being practiced now going on. It's like a very comfortable practice of Judaism, you know, and I always felt intuitively attracted to that rather than something really strict and sorry for people who f may feel differently, but very dogmatic approach. So that was a very big inspiration for me, of course. And we can, I continue, my family continue to practice that way. So in terms of spiritual life, as opposed to quote unquote, religious life. So I'm curious, what would Maimonides have to say? You know, we taught in Chinese medicine a lot about the Shen. We're very concerned with it, for good reason. I'm curious to know what Maimonides would have to say about that. A quick aside, which is that there's a very good book out by a scholar who's at Goldmarks in London by name of Ronit Tlalim, T-L-A-L-I-M, and she's written a book about the Silk Road medicine, how doctors in Tibet and China communicated with Greek or Arabic doctors who were in Persia and Egypt. Maimonides was in Egypt, and he was a physician to the Sultan at the time. And he used to order a lot of his herbs from India. His brother was a trader to India, and he used to bring back herbs from India. So he was using Ayurvedic herbs in his practice. There was already a world integrative medicine a thousand years ago in the Rambam's time and Maimonides' time. So he talks all about, like, there are our young rabbi here, Rabbi Yonatan Halevi, and I were studying a book many years ago about the Talmud. And at the beginning, it's really laying out a psychological, emotional, mental profile of a person. He knew psychology he talks constantly about how to make the patient comfortable, how their heart should be stilled and calm, and so forth. So he talks about these things all the time. 
So maybe not in the formal sense of the term Shen, maybe a little bit more of a, because it's again, a completely different um, philosophical approach. It was more, he was more an Aristotelian than say a uh, Neo-Confucian philosopher per se, although there's a lot in common in my opinion. I was going to say, it sounds like they're looking at something similar. Oh, very much so. Because humans are humans. Right. We can name it in different ways. We can tell different stories about it or systematize the human being in different ways. But the same story seems to get told over and over again. And there's much more communication in the world in those days than we seem to think today. You know, And in many ways, it was more open than things are today. They, they were less balkanized than what we are seeing now. At least that's my experience studying the work. So I also have books from great Arabic physicians of the era, Tibetan, Indian physicians. And there's a real common language in all that, despite the cultural differences. Yeah. You get the laws in Colorado. You guys are licensed now. You can be above board. You can advertise. You can do your thing. And then you leave town? Yeah, yeah. I remarried about 35, 36 years ago. And my wife-to-be was in New York, and I was in Colorado. And we say, let's split the difference. But those days, I, quite frankly, the last time I tried to move back to New York, I got pneumonia. It was before the, <laughs> the APA. And I said, I'm not, I really can't go back there, but I'm willing to do it for you. But there was no licensing in New York. It was impossible to get licensed in New Jersey or Connecticut. The closest I could get to there would have been Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. We decided, let's go to California. There's a community we like there. We know people. We'll split the difference. New York, Colorado, we'll split the difference. California. Unfortunately, even though I had a degree from a school in Santa mm -hmm. Fe, even though I had a license in New Mexico, mm -hmm. there was no reciprocity in California. No, California is its own thing. It was, especially back then. I mean, I don't mean this in the wrong way, but if you came from an Asian country, there were no questions asked. You could take the exam and get in. Yeah, they were racist. <laughs> yeah, I won't go too far in that one. Let's just say that I ended up going to Emperor's Free Year, which was not a bad choice to get you know the then- master's degree in California. And then I was going to take the exam and surprise, there was a scandal in the acupuncture board. They were selling the exam. So they shut down the exam for a year during the investigation. No license for you. No. So I went back to New Mexico and taught at Southwest Acupuncture College for a year and practiced there, waited a year, took the exam again, and then was able to go back to California. And I was looking at different places. One was Los Angeles, which... And this is in 80s at the... Late 80s, yeah. Late 80s. I've been in practice in Colorado from 83 through 88. 88 to 89, I was at the school. And, and then 89 to 90, I was in... Wait, which school? At Emperor's. At Emperor's, right. One year. Getting your master's degree. Yeah. Getting yet another degree. Yes. Then I, I taught at Southwest and practiced 89 till 90. And then 1990, I had a choice. I could be a department chair at Bastyr in Washington, but they had totally different requirements to practice there for a license. So I had to say no to that. 
emperors offered me a position because I really wanted to teach, especially after Southwest. But I didn't want to live in L.A., and the cost of living was already as astronomical in Santa Monica, which is the only part of the city I could see living in. So I got Ted Kapchuk had been teaching, as it turns out, at Pacific College here in San Diego, and he wanted to go back to Boston. So the uh, CEO, uh, Jack Miller, said, well, is there anybody you can recommend that I could have teach herbs? Because there's very little choice here in San Diego. There weren't any, many of any herbalists here. So... Uh, he said, well, I, Zev Rosenberg, I think, is a great choice. Why don't you invite him? So I came to San Diego. I'd never really been here, maybe one visit to go to the beach here. And I didn't know anyone. And I got the position. So I moved my family here. I'm on the same street. And that was like 33 years ago. And the rest is history, so to speak. I taught there 23 years. I was a department chair for of the herbal medicine department for 22 years. I also got to clear and throw a lot of different herbal books, you know, required, of course, the uh, Eastland Press books. And first, Shang Han Lun came out through uh, Paradigm Press. I lobbied for a Shang Han Lun class because I felt it was essential to teach the Shang Han Lun. Yeah, that way you can teach macrobiotics. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and I taught that class. First it was an elective and then finally it became required. And there was a good position for a while. Then I decided to retire from that and do private practice and then teach in doctor programs and do seminars. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. It's wonderful being in something at the beginning. If you can handle the uncertainty, because in the beginning, it's so fraught with possibility. Yes. Well, let me give you an example from my life. This isn't Chinese medicine, but I spent 10 years in the computer trades. Mm -hmm. It shows. You're good at what you do. <laughs> He's got a podcast. He knows how to use technology. Exactly. And what's funny about that to me is I got into that in like the mid-80s, teaching people to use computers, because I, I discovered that I, I had a knack for learning how to use a computer. I, I couldn't program a computer. I couldn't do it if my life depended on it, but I could figure out programs and I could teach people how to use them. I was somehow good at talking to people. 
I guess I could even do that back then. And very quickly, I, I found I was getting these consulting positions to like go into businesses, teach their staff how to do things. Was that in St. Louis or, or in Seattle? No, no, no. This is in Seattle. Yeah. I'm, I live most of my life in Seattle. Really? I thought you were a St. Louis boy. Well, I grew up here and I got the hell out when I was 18. Gotcha. I was never coming back here. Mm-mm, nope. Nope. <laughs> Don't let the universe hear that. Universe doesn't sleep. doesn't take naps. It's going to hear you. I'm never doing this. It's like, mm-hmm, we'll see. Anyway, people would ask me, can you come into my business and teach my people how to do X, Y, Z? And the answer was always, yes, I can. And then I have to go figure out how to do it. But back in those days, there wasn't, you know, Microsoft certification or this or that. It was kind of the wild, wild west. And if you had enough chutzpah just to say, yes, I can do that and then figure it out, well, there's a lot you can figure out and opportunities open up. Oh, yes, I can. Yes, I can. I, I told you I was seeing 100 patients a week within a year. You can imagine how it forced me to up my ante in terms of reading whatever I can. Anything that'll come out, articles, research, Chinese medicine, to some degree biomedicine, anything I can get my hands on because, man, I was getting the real stuff and I had to get people better. And I, somehow I was able to do it. And I got to see which books were really valuable and which were not, which methodologies were valuable and which were not, at least for me, you know? And I'm sure you had the same experience in your work. Well, you know, of course I have that experience in my, you know, Chinese medicine work. For sure. Absolutely. So it's kind of the way it works. It's how you season yourself as a practitioner. But you had to grow up in public in this field because... You had to grow up in public. And, you know, there's that piece, you know, we're talking about piss and vinegar, that piece about I'm just curious and I'm just going to follow this thing because I just want to see where the hell it goes. Well, one of the unfortunate side effects of piss and vinegar, I think, was when the Practical Dictionary of Chinese Medicine came out, it was a revelation. And I got it. So I says that all the basic classes should be using this to define terms. Now, I never felt that Nigel Wiseman's English definitions were the only ones. I want to make that clear. But it's a gateway into the Chinese language, you know, from English to Pinyin to Chinese. That didn't mean I was against, you know, Eastland's translations, which I thought were just fine and excellent and so forth. But that turns into another war, so to speak. And I remember when Nigel would come out for conferences here that he'd be attacked by the audience. I mean, there were some people who were really out to get him. That was the beginning, in a sense, of my ability to enter Chinese language, unlike uh, Dan or Ted Kapchuk or Michael Brofman, because I already had a family and I was young and I couldn't travel, leave the country, I wasn't able to have access to Chinese language until much later, until my 40s, now like another 15 years on. And it's been slow going ever since. You know, I studied directly with Sabina. I have direct contact with Paul Unschuld advising and Leo Loke and people like that. And you know, I've gotten a lot of help along the way, and I have Pleco and all the rest of it. But I certainly don't have time to be a full-time translator. I consider myself an interpreter, you know? Language is such a funny thing. So does it help you to be a better practitioner by knowing Chinese? Definitely. Definitely, for me. I don't know if it makes you a better practitioner. I think it makes it easier to understand certain things because you don't have 
you don't have to like take it into English. You can you can kind of grok it within the Chinese. Well, there's the point. I think it's helpful. You know, I you know you're right. You can be a great practitioner without the Chinese language. The problem is this, at least the school of thought I come from, what you think is who you are and what you do. The what we call the clinical gaze. Mm -hmm. How you view the patient, the universe in which you see them in, the connection with the natural world. I find that without the connection to the language, and I'm talking about the classical Chinese and unpacking the characters. It's talk about condensing information. One character, you know, contains so much information, and because originally it was seal script, pictographic, so forth, you get revelations out of simple characters. You can. That possibility is there. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. As a more artistic type of mentality rather than a mathematical one in my case, it's been very, very helpful for me in terms of visualizing the clinical universe in which I practice. And I'm, it's an ongoing thing. I'm saying the same thing I said 25 years ago, which is just start. Don't worry about finishing or becoming fluent. I'm not fluent by any stretch of the imagination. Well, here's the other thing, and I think this is really important. If you're looking to learn enough Chinese to better understand the medicine, it's not insurmountable. And the reason it's not insurmountable is the technical language of Chinese medicine, it's fairly limited. Any technical language is fairly limited. Now, look, if you want to learn to read newspapers, all right, there's some Mishigas. That's going to be tough, right? But... The, the vocabulary in Chinese medicine, the way things are talked about in Chinese medicine, the grammatical constructs that we often use in Chinese medicine, it's a fairly limited subset. Yeah, especially things like Shang Han Lun and so forth, which... Yeah. So getting medical Chinese is a doable thing. Again, because you're not learning to order plane tickets or lunch for that matter. You're just learning to do medicine. And because it is somewhat limited within that technical sphere, it's doable. And even if you just pick up a bit of it, enough to read some of the, the work out there, look, the characters are used over and over again. We're talking about the same stuff. Almost any book, I've, I found this with reading Chinese, it, it's rusty at this point, but any book that you want to read, you get 30 pages, 40 pages into it, you have your gloss you have what you need to know to read the rest of the book. Because in the first 40 pages, you're going to get all the characters that are going to be repeated again and again through the book. Well, you know, I tell everyone, and I think I've said on a previous podcast as well, is that Chinese medicine is an, ideally an ecosystem. We don't have to wear every hat. We don't have to do everything. It's like we need professional translators, whether it's Dan or Sabina or Elizabeth Rochat, Paul Unschuld. And there's a bunch of new folks coming up, Michael Brown and Ron Evan and Will and... Yes. Oh, man, those guys, the Purple Cloud people are fantastic. I love their books and they're really great. And Alan's, his footnoting to his works is just wonderful. So I really love his work too. But we need those people. But we also, we need people to grow herbs. We need to start growing herbs in this country. We need pharmacists. We need people to you know, have needle companies. We need people. We have all these other positions within the profession other than practitioner. And it's become a little bit too of a monoculture, in my opinion. 
And some of us as practitioners, we could take on other skills as well, like you do and I do. But um, we can't do everything. There's only so many hats we can wear. So I decided I was not going to be a full-time translator in this lifetime. I was going to be a practitioner and using my spare time to learn as much as I can on the Chinese end. But I'm very glad to tip my beret to those who are doing such awesome translation work. And Well, one of the real beauties of, of being in this field, being a practitioner is great. It's a wonderful way to make a living. It's a wonderful way to connect with people. It's a wonderful way to repair the world a little bit, you know, our little corner of it. And like you point out, there's all these other things you can do if you're interested. And if you have a bit of an entrepreneurial bend, you can take whatever fires you up and dig into it for sure. Zev, back when when you were, you know, cutting that swath in, in the early days and, and first getting into it, microbiotics, Chinese medicine, I'm wondering, was there was there a problem that you were looking to solve? You know, I mean, it, most young people, I think, you know, were born into a world and, you know, we didn't ask to be born into it and nobody made the world for us. We're usually pretty disgruntled with what we see. At least I hope you are, you know, <laughs> give you some, give, give you something to do with the rest of your life, right? I know it's different though. There's a song by Eric Clapton and Van Morrison out now. Where have all the rebels gone? Sitting behind their computer screens. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> Eric. Back then, you know, it was wide open, you know, and uh, I think we were just looking for something to make the world whole again, you know, in our own lives and in the lives of the people around us. And we're trying to reconstruct, you know, life. I mean, I found that in the lifestyles of many of the Pueblo dwellers in the Southwest and or the fact that they, up until World War II, relied, both the Hispanic and the Native population, relied on herbal medicine and Native treatments. I studied with a curandera there and a curandero. I apprenticed in an herb store there of Native herbs and so forth and learned the local plants. So we were definitely looking for roots, in my case, you know, growing up in a New York suburb and you know, where everything was completely artificial. Always had a yearning for nature and mountains and rivers and, you know. Looking for roots. And here, my friend, you find it in a medicine that came from the other side of the world through a different language, through a culture, extremely different, very different minds than our Western minds. But much more, shall we say, one of the things that the psychedelic era taught many of us was that we live in a sentient universe. The universe is alive and that we are part of this sentient universe and that there are cultures that see that. I saw that the Asian cultures saw that and you know, my early exposures to people like Alan Watson, of course, the I Ching and Paul Reps, of course, Gary Snyder, who's still my favorite poet all these years later, his works, I you know, concern, and now I'm into like, mountains and rivers poetry of Tang Dynasty poets. In that regard, I have a real thing for that. And that also helps me with my Chinese language study. You know, all these kind of things are part of a puzzle. And of course, the original Jewish approach, especially that practiced by Yemenite Jews, was very much connected in that way. It hadn't gotten into that dualistic sense that I attribute to uh, 
overly simplistically, I may add, European or Eurocentrism. Cartesian logic. The mind has its universe. The physical world is, is a machine, mechanistic, different universe. I was trying to bridge that divide, but that's a huge discussion. So, I... it's it's one perspective. Your your words here, they really sit with me. That we live in a sentient universe, and if we take that a priori, I think it changes our actual perception. There are many of us in high school who are discovering that. You know, with the things like, you know, marijuana and my, what I consider mild psychedelics like mescaline, peyote. But I knew as soon as I saw that, I was not interested in drugs. I was interested in finding natural ways, meditation, yoga, qigong, things like that, studying inspirational works to find a more grounded, real basis in that. And I saw where the so-called drug culture went. It went into Jack Daniels, cocaine, Club 54, disco, decadence. Well, it's, it's, it's one way it could go. Did you have experience with any of these substances when you were young? Um, you mean cocaine? God forbid, no. I never... Took... No, 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 no. No, I mean the psychedelics. Oh, yeah. Psychedelics. Not a lot, yeah. but en just in a few times enough to know what they did, and I didn't have to go back there again. That's all. Here's the interesting thing about psychedelics, and it's really interesting with all the therapies that are being rediscovered because they were experimenting with this stuff in the 50s, right? These things are not, psychedelics aren't addictive. Psychedelics open you up and it's like, ooh, I got a dose. Okay, I'm going to go digest that for the next few months. Well, of course, now they're used, being used microdosing therapeutically. I think the doses were probably too high back then. And I did see some people go off their rockers. And of course, the founder of Pink Floyd who wrote that beautiful song was one of those people. Mm -hmm. But um. Yeah, there's dangers. There's there's dangers to opening up those uh, kinds of perceptions. I had moved to Colorado already, and I came back to New York, and a couple, one or two years had passed. And where we used to pass around a joint among friends at a gathering, I went back to the same group, and there was no joint. There was a $100 bill and cocaine. And I left there. I said, I never want to see this again. It's over. Or as they say now, so over. When I saw that, I said, this is decadence. Don't want any part of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wouldn't have done it under any circumstance, but I always saw cocaine, et cetera, et cetera, pills, uppers, downers, as hard drugs, as drugs. I didn't see, I saw psychedelics as kind of sacraments, you know. I would agree. Yeah. And, and again, back to something that gives you a glimpse, whether it is a psychedelic, or poetry, or meditation, or whatever practice you have that gives that recognition that, that we are living in that sentient universe. It makes a difference. Yes. I suspect. And was it Dan who said the couple on, on your interview with him that he, he doesn't see himself as doing acupuncture, but working with people and ideas? And was, is that how he said it? Because I really resonated with that. It's like, these are our tools, which we interact with life and with people. And because of that, acupuncture really is, as you said, beyond the need to conceptualize it. It just does something really wonderful. And, you know, I love herbal medicine. I've always loved plants. I practice herbal medicine. But I really think that acupuncture as a medicine is the medicine for 
the 21st century because it does something corrective that I haven't found anything else does. It cuts through all the drugs people may be taking when sometimes it's more difficult to use herbs. It cuts through conceptual things. It cuts through wrong ideas people have about their minds and bodies in a way where you don't have to proselytize at all. It just creates space for change to happen. It's just an amazing thing. And that's why 40 plus years later, I'm still fascinated to put needles in people every single day of the week, you know, except Shabbat. <laughs> except Shabbat. Yeah, I hear you. The, the transformations that I see on my table, this stillness and quietude that people find themselves in, that they just, you can see it in their eyes that they found something that had been misplaced and they just don't have words for it. And it's okay. You know, it's great sitting with people like, yeah, we don't need to talk about this and we can recognize something's happened. And, you know, and, and they're always like, how long will this last? Or, you know, what did you do? And it's like, look, I didn't do anything. All acupuncture does is it calls out something that's within, which means what you're feeling right now, this is you. And you get to take this with you. It's beautiful. And of course, we create the environment for that to happen in our offices. You know, Ted Kapchuk started talking about resonance, ying, gan ying, many, many years ago. And I wasn't really sure what he was talking about. It took me many years to catch up with him. But he said, acupuncture is all about gan ying, about resonance. He was right. I agree. Yeah. And that is a study and inquiry that, you know, you can take into your clinic and explore for a lifetime. Yes. So wonderful. Well, thank you so much for the, the walk through the medicine that, uh, that you've had and all that you've done to help so many people learn it and help folks with it. Well, we're still, as Jimi Hendrix said, still raining, still dreaming. We're still doing it, still living the dream. And, uh, no, love working with you and having you on the journey with me all these years. And I will offer you some of the finest pu'er tea money can buy when you come to town. We'll okay. sit down and we'll share some, okay? I'm in, man. All right. Great. Take care. You too. The history and stories of those who helped to create the acupuncture trade that we now benefit from are worth a listen because there are stories of vision, courage, and the kind of good fortune serendipity that seems to accompany fools and sages. I bring you these stories because on one hand, it's helpful to know where we come from. And further, perhaps they can help us in this modern moment as well, as we too chart a path into an uncertain future. I'd love to know how you feel about these glimpses of the people that have helped Oriental medicine find its way into mainstream culture. Share your thoughts with me by sending an email to together at geological.com. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.